John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. John 12, generosity and greed. John 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly, genuine spikenard ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you'll show us from this word what we have to learn about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and also the implications of these actions and words by both Mary and Judas. Teach us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In John 12, we're coming now to mostly a private situation, but there will be some dialogue and public, uh, public events later in the chapter, starting in verse 12. But the discourses and the miracles of Christ have ended from chapters 1 to 11. The discourses and the miracles have ended for the most part. Of course, the miracle of resurrection is yet to come. In this passage, we have the final week of Christ, the final week before his crucifixion. Here, John the Apostle, he picks it up in verse 1 with Jesus arriving along with his disciples six days before the Passover. This is the fourth and final Passover that Jesus celebrated, and it was at this season that he was arrested, crucified, and then three days later, raised from the dead. And then 40 days of appearances on the earth and his ascension after the 40 days. These are the six days before the Passover. The incident that's recorded here, we have already said from chapter 11, where it was first mentioned, chapter 11, verse 2, the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his hair, his feet with her hair. In chapter 11, verse 2, this is the incident that he anticipated in chapter 11, but now describes here in chapter 12. And we've also said that this is a distinct one from what is recorded in Luke chapter 7. This one is distinct from that. There are differences of opinion on whether this one is the same incident as the one in Matthew 26 and in Mark. From Matthew 26 also and in Mark chapter 14. Um, some say it's the same incident. 
Others say it's a different incident. I take the view that it is a different incident because this one happens six days before the Passover and the one in Matthew and Mark happens two days before the Passover and it also happens in a different house and there are different other circumstances related to the incident. So we'll take this to be a separate incident. That would mean that there were three times when women came to Christ like this in a very humble way, with this humble generosity. The Passover, the Passover here in verse 1 is approaching. What was the Passover? Exodus chapters 12 and 13 describe the Passover. Passover was the festival celebrated on the eve of them leaving the land of Egypt when Israel departed Egypt. And God instituted it as the beginning of their religious calendar in the springtime, usually in the month of March, that this Passover should be celebrated to commemorate their redemption, which redemption was a prefigurement, was an illustration of the coming redemption in Jesus Christ. They were slaves to Egyptian slavery, but we are slaves to sin. And the one who delivers us from sin is Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, where Christ is our Passover. He is our Passover, and He, according to the providence of God, died for us during this feast of Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. They come to the city Bethany, which is just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, where He would be crucified. Lazarus there was raised from the dead. Remember in chapter 11, they went to Bethany where Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, they lived there and Jesus went there to raise Lazarus from the dead. He returns to this familiar home, this friendly home. And John notes that Jesus raised him from the dead. This incident, which was within a short time between the resurrection of Lazarus and Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection became a major issue, a major controversy among the authorities, the religious authorities, because they want to kill Lazarus and also seize Jesus and kill him too. They weren't grateful for it. They were not amazed by it. It just increased their hatred, their animosity toward Christ and the followers of Christ. Verse 2, <clears throat> verse two we read, So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. They made him a supper. We understand this to be Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It is their home. So they made him a supper. They were apt, they were prone to eating meals together, fellowshipping over the food and the things of God. And as typical, the host is very hospitable here. And Martha is in charge. It seems as though among the three of them, Martha was the main one in charge of making the preparations and serving what was prepared. This we also found in Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42. There in Luke 10, 38 to 42, 
Luke tells us that Martha was full of worry and anxiety about all the preparations. Mary was seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach, but Martha was too preoccupied with the preparations and even accused Jesus, confronted Jesus of not caring for her. Do you not care that she has left me, my sister Mary has left me to do all the preparations alone? She says, and Jesus rebuked her and said that Martha has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. You are worried and bothered about so many things, too many things. Don't worry about it. What's really important is the spiritual food that Mary is enjoying. You should also be calm and cool about what you're doing and be like Mary. We appreciate you serving, but have the right perspective on your serving. Here, it looks like Martha has learned her lesson because John doesn't present any complaint here. It looks like Martha has learned and grown in her sanctification. Probably so. He simply says Martha was serving. In her abilities, in her gifts of doing so, she was leading in this regard. Lazarus is reclining at the table with him. Typically, this is how it would happen, not only in that culture, but in many cultures, where the women are serving and preparing. They serve and prepare for the men to eat, and then after that has happened, then the women sit down and eat themselves. Likely that was the scenario here, Jesus with his disciples and Lazarus at the table. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of very costly, genuine spikenard ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. Here also we see that Mary is... She has a proclivity, she has a bent towards the spiritual, even in this occasion. She's more focused on the spiritual than the physical. Not that she left Martha to do all the work, but her mind was first fixed on spiritual things. And what does she plan? This is very intentional. Intentional. She is very deliberate in doing this. How do we know? Because she has this costly ointment, very costly ointment or perfume. She has this with her. She's not going to just on a whim uh, squander what she has. Something that's very precious and costly, she wouldn't do it on a whim. She had to have been thinking about this, contemplating doing it and doing it at the right time. So she does. It's a pound, it says, a very costly, genuine So it's not mixed with water or any other elements. It's very pure, costly ointment. This spike nard or nard ointment would have been very difficult to obtain, very costly to obtain. It says here a pound. If if he means here a Roman pound, a Roman pound would have been about 12 ounces. A Roman pound of 12 ounces. And if it's very costly... It says in verse 5, 300 denarii. We take this to be accurate. If it was 300 denarii for a pound of this, then a denarii was equivalent to a day's wage, 
according to Matthew chapter 20, verse 2. Matthew 20, verse 2. In that context, it was equivalent to a day's wage, which means it's 300 days wage. That's how much money she spent. 300 out of 365 in a typical year or 360, however you want to look at it. They, uh, she was spending a lot of money on that one incident. Money that she had saved up, money she had saved up for this ointment. We don't know at what point she was contemplating this, but we do know in verse 7 that Jesus understands what she's doing. Let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She had been thinking about this for some time. Not only does she give generously, and she uses it on, on this occasion very generously, she also does it in great humility. Generously and in great humility, verse 3, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And it wasn't just a little amount. It was a sufficient amount that the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. The fragrance spread quickly throughout the house. So then, we see that the feet typically would have to be washed in a dusty, dirty environment where they don't have paved roads, usually not where they have dirt roads and they wear sandals, they would enter a house and in their own house or in someone else's house, they would be, especially if it's a long journey, they would be concerned to wash their feet. And the host would make provision for that. In this case, she's not only making provision for washing feet with water, but washing feet with this costly ointment. With the costly ointment. And also wiping it because she had poured so much of it, wiping it with her hair, her own hair. Likely her hair was bound, likely her hair was covered, but she unbinds it and then wipes his feet with her very hair. The glory of the woman, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16. The very glory of the woman, she turns into something inglorious in the sense that what woman thinks of wiping a man's feet with her very hair, her very glory? Nobody thinks of that. Nobody does that. And of course, in the normal situation, we don't do that. This is a very exceptional circumstance. And she did it. She was very willing to do it. Do you think she will be ready to bow at the feet of Christ when she meets him face to face? Certainly. When the scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue confess, she is very happy to do it now and certainly later with all the saints. She does so. Also in reference to this ointment, why would she do it? And why did the Jews embalm and anoint and prepare dead bodies? Why did they prepare these corpses? Because they believed in resurrection. This was their physical or tangible way of expressing faith in resurrection. Because they know that when the body is raised up from the dead, it will be a fragrant, a beautiful, a wonderful, an amazing time that everyone will enjoy. 
So, in anticipation of the day of resurrection, they embalm the bodies upon death in faith that they believe that resurrection will come. We know that from chapter 11. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Chapter 11, verse 24. She believes in it, and the Jews believed in it. That's why they would do this. And that's why it's related to burial in anticipation. There's no loss of hope. They are expressing hope and faith that one day resurrection will occur. This is what Mary does. In her humble generosity, in her humble faith, that Jesus will come and, uh, or is about to die for her sins. However, we have a contrast, a blatant, stark contrast here in verses 4 and following. Verse 4, Judas Iscariot. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, But Judas Iscariot. John makes the contrast. But Judas. Now this Judas is Judas Iscariot. He is surnamed like this in order to distinguish him from another disciple named Judas. For example, John 14, 22. John 14 and verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? John makes it clear. John the Apostle makes it clear. We're not talking about Judas Iscariot in John chapter 14. Uh, We have more specificity of this other Judas in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. Acts 1, 13, where this Judas is called Judas, the son of James. Judas, the son of James. And in Matthew 10, 1 to 4, this Judas is called Thaddeus. The Thaddeus of Matthew 10 is Judas here in John and in Luke. He was known by both names, which should not surprise us. So this Judas Iscariot, however, also one of his disciples, meaning one of the 12 disciples, who was intending to betray him. What do we see here? This Judas Iscariot is one of the 12. And what did the 12 have for three and a half years? They were preceded with John the Baptist and his ministry preaching the coming Christ. Christ comes and then they have the great privilege. Only 12 people of all the billions and billions of people who have ever lived in the world. These 12 had access. They had the opportunity to be with Jesus Christ for three and a half years. One of these 12 has this pride, this audacity to retort like this, to confront Mary when she's behaving in genuine faith, in humble generosity. He has the audacity to confront that with the following statement. Not only that, he was intending to betray him. John tells us that this intention to betray Christ, 
his own Lord, the one he followed. This was in Judas for a while. It was not in Judas suddenly. It was not on a whim within the last couple of days. It was in the heart of Judas for a while. He was intending to betray him, which means prior to the six days before the Passover, prior to the night of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, prior to that, he was intending to betray Christ. It had been on his mind for a long time, most likely. Verse 5, he covers up his sin with religiosity. He covers up his sin with superficial religion. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Listen, we could have used this. We could have used all of this, taken this ointment, got some money for, from it, and who's the one that carries the money? He carries the money. So he said this not because, verse 6, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He used to steal. He was a thief and he used to steal what was put into the money box. He was the treasurer of all of the disciples. Whenever they were earning money or given money, whenever they had the money, they would put it in the money box and Judas would carry it. And whenever they had expenses, Judas was in charge of paying those expenses. However, privately, secretly, in some dark corner, he would take money out and keep it in his own pocket because he was a thief by nature. The disciples didn't know this. The disciples didn't understand this, not at this point. They thought he was one of them. They thought he was righteous. They thought he believed the true gospel. When he preached the true gospel, they thought he believed in it. At that time, they thought that, but not later. Upon the betrayal and subsequent events, they understood the true character of Judas. But up to this point, they're going along with it, most likely, though it's not said here. It is said that way in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, that they agreed with the comment, the complaint. But here, it's just Judas' words and John's reaction to Judas' words. Using religion, we could have helped the poor when actually it would have increased the amount of money in the money box and Judas could have stolen more. And if he did give something to the poor, maybe he gave just a, a half of it or a smaller portion of it or even a tiny fraction of it to the poor and kept some of the rest, or all of the rest. Verse 7. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let her alone. Leave her alone. Don't bother her. She has done it for the right purpose to prepare me to keep it for my burial. She is anticipating my burial. 
She is really doing so. It's not as though Jesus is imposing this belief on her. Jesus is explaining her belief. Some believe that she didn't understand what she was doing. She was just doing this on a whim, but then Jesus puts a new color on it. He puts an interpretation on it that she did not intend. No, she did intend it, and she did know it was imminent. Because even if a commentator agrees she did intend it for his burial, she had no way of knowing it was about to happen, that it was shortly to happen. No, she did understand. She did know, and Jesus says so, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus interprets her actions. He knows full well, without her saying anything, why she's doing it. He knows why. Further, verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. If you genuinely had concern for the poor, you could always, at any time, do something for them which is noble, commendable to help the poor. Those who are in real need, help them. But you won't always have me. If you understand what I've been preaching, you know, even if you want to deny it, deny reality, deny the circumstances, you won't always have me, and I'm going to be taken away from you sooner than you think. So she, in anticipation of why, I'm going to be arrested. Why I'm going to die on the cross. Why I'm going to rise from the dead. Why all of this, in anticipation of that, she is looking to that, and that's why she has this humble, genuine, faithful generosity. But you, you won't always have me here. I, remember I told you, I go away. He it was about to go away. Now, a few things that we can learn from this passage. First, in reference to Mary. In reference to Mary in the first part of the passage, we've spoken of her humble gratitude or her humble, faithful generosity. Um, We need to speak of why it is that she is this way. Why is Mary this way? She is this way because she knows why Jesus has come into the world. She understands correctly, since she has been more attentive than Martha, and more attentive in some ways than the other disciples, she has been more attentive and more knowledgeable that his imminent death is for her sins. And therefore she's grateful. She has this humble gratitude or because she has this understanding of what Jesus is about to accomplish. Whenever we act properly in faith for Christ's sake, for His glory and for His kingdom, it will be preceded preceded by gratitude. She had that. That's why she knows what she received was a gift and she's going to give it away as a gift because it was the Lord who gifted her and the Lord who gifted her not only with the material possessions of the money and the ointment, but also her eternal salvation. That's why the scripture teaches us in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks for all things. Giving thanks for all things. It also teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, ceasing in everything. Give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. She had that. This is why she was behaving, conducting herself the way she was. But the opposite is the case with Judas. He wasn't looking forward to the cross. She was looking forward to the cross and therefore had this humble gratitude, faith in what Jesus was about to accomplish. Further, we see in this passage that Mary, along with Martha and Lazarus, are practicing hospitality. They're practicing hospitality, which is also something Jesus taught us. He taught to invite the stranger in. In Matthew 25, 35, Matthew 25, 35, he taught to invite the stranger, those who are in prison, help, those who are without food and clothing, help, those who are sick, help. He taught us to do so. And that's what she's doing, practicing this hospitality. She is also doing according to Romans 12, 13, or they are doing according to Romans 12, 13, practicing hospitality. Even Peter says in 1 Peter 4.9, 1 Peter 4.9, um, to do things without complaint. Do not complain to one another, against one another, but practice hospitality without complaint. It's everyone, whoever is in the church, should be practicing this. But specifically, pastors should do so. They should lead by example. 1 Timothy 3.2, it says that the pastor, the overseer, elder, should be hospitable. 1 Timothy 3.2. Titus 1.8 says the same, to be hospitable. And this was indeed a common practice in the church, in the true early church. Acts chapter 10, verse 48. 10.48, Cornelius The Roman centurion is practicing hospitality, he and his household. Romans 10, 48. And he ordered them to be baptized. Excuse me, Acts 10, 48. Acts 10, 48. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. To stay on for a few days. Acts chapter 16 and verse 15. Lydia and her household... Lydia and her household, Acts 16, 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Acts 16, 34. The Philippian jailer, he and his household. Acts 16, 34. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Those who believe want to be generous, generous towards others, especially to the household of God. Another matter that we see with Mary in her humble approach, her humble generosity and her humble gratitude has to do with this costly ointment. We have spoken of how valuable it is and how costly it is, but I would like to reiterate the fact that she is doing it in the anticipation 
of the imminent death of Christ. She is, in fact, doing it for that reason. Therefore, when she does it, it's not for show. When she does it, she's not trying to toot her horn. When she does it, she's not blowing a trumpet. When she does it, she's not doing it banging drums and speaking loudly on the street corner. She's not doing it for show. She's not doing it to be seen by men. She is doing it in faith because she has this genuine, thankful heart, humble heart, grateful heart, and it manifests itself in her generosity. Let's prove that point. Let's first see from the book of John. Things Jesus has said that she either heard directly or she heard secondarily, but certainly would have heard, either directly or indirectly heard these words. John 2, John 2, 18 to 22. John 2, 18 to 22. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Here Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, meaning his adversaries would destroy his body. Correct? Even though his adversaries destroy his body, he will raise it up in three days. And the disciples we see in verse 22 are likely the 12 or the 11, because Judas hanged himself, that these disciples understood what he meant by this word in full faith at that time. But I will show you that it wasn't in no faith. It was in full faith at that time, but meantime, not in no faith. I'll, I, I'll explain shortly. Then we have in John 6, John 6, 51. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's talking about giving up his flesh to ironically give life to the world. What's he talking about? But his death. Which death, he says, he spoke of in John 3.14. John 3.14 and 12.32-33. Let's turn to John 12.32. John 12.32. And the parallel to this is in John 3.14 when he said, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. John three fourteen and 15. So what does it mean for Jesus to be lifted up? John twelve thirty two to 33. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. 
But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The kind of death by which he was to die. Crucifixion. Moses even preached the coming Christ would be crucified, according to John 3, 14 and 15. Also, John 10, 17 and 18. John 10, 17. More evidence of what Mary understood. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The commandment to lay down his life and to take it up again. What else does he mean but his death and resurrection? Also, chapter 11. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 49 to 54. 49 to 54. Remember Caiaphas. 1149. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And 54, Jesus therefore no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And 57, look at 57. Now the Pharisee, excuse me, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Do you think Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were completely oblivious to these things? No. They knew. They knew that his death was imminent. Imminent. And also the disciples elsewhere. Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 22. Matthew 17, 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised again on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Why were the disciples deeply grieved? If they did not understand that he would be delivered into the hands of men, killed, crucified, and then rise from the dead on the third day. They were deeply grieved because they couldn't stand the thought of all of these wicked men, Jews and Gentiles, capturing Christ and mistreating Him, crucifying Him, their Lord and Savior. They were focused on that part, and they were deeply grieved. They understood what was about to happen. And lastly, our last example is in Matthew 20, 28. Matthew 20 and verse 28, where Christ explains. 
Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Give his life a ransom for many. He was teaching his imminent death. And as far as women are concerned, people are people usually think they have a tendency of thinking that only certain men, not all men, but only certain men in the Bible were intelligent and had knowledge, significant knowledge about God and the truth. But otherwise, men generally were completely illiterate and women especially did not know anything and could not be trusted for anything. Modern men, modern people think of biblical women and men that way. But that's not true. We will see. John 4. John 4, 25. John 4, 25 to 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What does this woman of Samaria at the well of Samaria know? She knows that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will declare all things. She knows that. And she is a Samaritan woman. She's a woman. She's a woman of ill repute because she had had five husbands and the man she now had was not her husband. And she's in this area where they have a partial knowledge of the truth in Samaria because they were not from the southern region that had the full truth, that is the full Bible. They had partial Bible with partial knowledge and even with that partial Bible with partial knowledge, she had this knowledge that was true, that Messiah is coming and he'll declare everything to us that we need to know. And then Jesus says to her, I am talking to you. I who speak to you am he that Christ, that Messiah. She was told that. And even the townsmen, 442, in Samaria, 442. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. We know now, not just from what you said, we know from personal investigation, personal examination. And as well, John 11. Martha in the same family. John 11, what does Martha know? John 11, 24. John 11, 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is, he who comes into the world. The same as the Samaritan woman, now she is saying, Martha is saying. And Mary and Martha are sisters. And it may be that Mary has a proclivity, a, um, a bent more than Martha does to ask the spiritual question first. So if Martha knows it, and she's not with that bent, Certainly Mary knows it. Who has that bent? To say, you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. 
You are the one who is the resurrection and the life. They believe it. They know it. And they anticipate it. Why have we stressed this? We have stressed this because Mary's actions are commendable because they are an example for us to behave like that, to be practicing humble gratitude, humble faith, and generosity toward Christ because of what Christ has done for us. She understood that, and because of that, she's doing it. She's not doing it to work for salvation. She's doing, doing it because of her salvation. She's bearing fruit. She's not earning salvation by this. She's bearing fruit that she truly is a believer. Mary does so. Mary understands, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. She is following Christ daily. She understands that. She understands like the one Samaritan man who was healed in Luke 17, 11 to 19. In Luke 17, 11 to 19, when the one Samaritan was healed, healed of his leprosy, he came back to Christ. He came back to Christ and he says the following. 17, 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Were there none found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And one more on Mary. She understands her place before Christ, her humility. John three twenty seven. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John three thirty. He must increase, but I must decrease. She understood first Corinthians four. She understood first Corinthians four. Verse 7. For who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Whatever she has, both spiritually and physically, comes as a gift to her. She knew that. She didn't boast. Judas is the boaster, he's the arrogant one. She is not. She understood this very well. Now Judas. Judas Iscariot. He is, in our chapter, an example of someone who has seen, someone who has heard, someone who has had the, one of the greatest privileges of, in all the world of being one of the twelve apostles of Christ, one of the original twelve apostles. Yet, in spite of all that, he spits in the face of Christ. When he says these words about giving to the poor, he's really spitting in the face of Christ. He is a proud and greedy man. He's a proud and covetous man. 
He's a proud and envious man. He's a proud and jealous man. He's only concerned about his own well-being, everything related to himself, and nothing in relation to Christ, let alone other people. Nor, not Christ and not others. He's only concerned about himself. Did he know that greed was wrong? Did he know that covetousness was wrong? Did he know that theft was wrong? Certainly. Exodus 12, 20, verses 15 and 17. Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet. Covetousness is a synonym for greed. Envying others, being jealous of what others possess and wanting what others possess and hoarding it for yourself. Greed focuses on the, the fact that the individual who wants it is wanting it for himself and in abundance for himself. That's the focus of the word greed. Covetousness is what others have, I want. I envy what others have. I have a jealousy for having what someone else wants. He knew that that was sin. He certainly knew that. But it did not move him. What else did he not keep in view? He did not keep in view that hell is the outcome. Hell is the outcome for those who covet. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 to 11. 6 verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Not inherit the kingdom of God. Covetousness is named in verse 10. Ephesians 5, 5. Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Also, Colossians 3, verse 5. 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. The wrath of God and punishment in the lake of fire. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. What is the nature of this idolatry? Colossians, Ephesians, mention this word idolatry as, as a synonym of this covetousness and greed. What is it? It is fundamentally the love of money. Fundamentally the love of money. And it's not the money itself as though they're going to eat and drink the, the money. They're not doing it like that. But when they have possession of the money, it is what they can do with the money. What the money does for them, 
both for their own physical body, but also in relation to other people. It is this love of money. This love of money, Christ warned us against it. He warned us against this love of money. For example, in Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, when Jesus announced this parable of the unrighteous steward, when he announced this parable, it was in order to show that we who are righteous should have, if we are righteous, should have a better view and a better understanding of the place of money than others do. We should. But when the Pharisees heard this, notice Luke 16, 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. Scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The Pharisees and Judas are in the same category. They're in the same boat, a sinking boat, right? They justify themselves in the sight of men, didn't Judas say, in the presence of the others? We should have given this money to the poor, right? Right here, they justify themselves, but God knows what's in the heart, and what they highly esteem is detestable in the sight of God. Christ preached against it. In the last days, according to 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, there will be lovers of money. We are in those last days. And specifically, people generally should not be lovers of money, but especially pastors. Pastors should not be lovers of money. We learn in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. 1 Timothy 3, 3. The pastor, overseer, elder, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Also, verse 8, for deacons. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Not fond of sordid gain. Gain that is suspicious. Gain that is filthy. Gain that does not have a proper color to it. They should not be earning that way. And who does so today? The, the Most pastors, especially pastors of large churches, they are in that pastorate for this very reason. They are lovers of money. And it should not surprise us that pastors today are that way. Paul the Apostle is warning Timothy and all subsequent generations of this right here in Timothy and in Titus 1.7 that the even overseers might be fond of sordid gain. He warns of it in 1 Timothy 6, 3-10 that there will be these who, for the love of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil, wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many a pang. It will happen. He tells us this in 1 Timothy and Titus. Again, 
And again, it should not surprise us. Judas Iscariot was a minister. He was an apostle. And as we read from 2 Kings chapter 5, wasn't Gehazi a minister? He was right there, the right-hand man of Elisha the prophet. He had the many miracles of Elisha the prophet right before his very eyes displayed openly. And that didn't move him. And God put a curse on him in 2 Kings chapter 5. This love of money is not only among the people, even of the, of the lowest rank of people, even among the very poor of, of the poorest people can have this love of money, this greed, and even those of the highest rank, and even those of the highest rank within Christian circles, in Christian churches and denominations. This is a common sin. We also note, one more thing to note, that Judas did it with an air of deceit. He put up a smokescreen. Remember that? That we could have given it to poor people? Uh, air of deceit. Gehazi did that in 2 Kings 5. Air of deceit. But God revealed it to Elisha the prophet that Gehazi had actually done that. And therefore, a curse of leprosy was on not only Gehazi, but all of his descendants forever on Gehazi's descendants. An air of deceit is also evidenced in Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, 1 to 11. They sold some property. It was their own property. They sold it willingly, and that was fine. They could have kept whatever they wanted to keep, but they lied about how much they were donating to the church. That lie was the problem. And because of that lie, each one, first husband, then wife, died instantly in the presence of the apostle Peter. This deceit carries on into false teachers. False teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 to 3. The deceit of false prophets and false teachers. 2 Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. They certainly will be judged by God. They deny Christ and they deny faithfulness to Christ, which faithfulness excludes, it does not include practicing sensuality, practicing greed, exploiting other people with false words. No deceit, no lying, no deception when we talk to others about what we are about, what we believe, what we're doing, we cannot have that. We must be truthful people. Judas was not that. And he died and went to hell. We cannot be that way and receive the same outcome. So let's be like Mary with full faith in Christ. Not like Judas who was... Empty, completely empty, 
void of faith in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.